0: Will you turn with me in the Word of God this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Our text for examination will be verses 14 through 15. And I'm going to ask you to stand now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant Word of the living God. 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning at verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays one another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. I, I know that the word nitty gritty isn't really a 50 cent level word, is it? It's not one of those elegant-sounding, high-minded, academic sort of words. But the concept is true and good enough, isn't it? Because when we think about the nitty-gritty, we think, we think about uh, getting down to what's practical and real and tangible and helpful. And I think of that concept here because as I look to our text and these two verses here, it seems to me that we receive um, such nitty-gritty instruction about congregational living like I can't think of anywhere else in Scripture. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, Do you have any unruly people in your congregation? Go confront them. He says, Do you have anybody in your church who's timid and faint-hearted? You go encourage them. He says, Do you have anybody who's struggling with moral and spiritual weakness? You go help them. That's nitty-gritty. That's putting your hands on life and your situation. It's looking within the context of the congregation that's saying something pretty honest about us It's saying that we're just a bunch of sinners here. And that means because we're a bunch of sinners here, there's inevitably going to be people who are struggling with spiritual infirmities. And the way we deal with that is not by being... um, a class clown or a smart aleck and pointing out people's problems. What the Apostle Paul says, we don't ignore them. We don't mock them. What we do is we help them. And what the Apostle Paul says, that it's going to happen, that the church is going to be faced with people who are enduring all kinds of spiritual infirmities and weaknesses. And here's the thing. There's good news. There's hope for you. That God has appointed in his wisdom means, which will help you, means which will help you. And they're spelled out here in very simple moral duties and admonitions, admonish, encourage, and help. This is a textbook on how to understand each other as sinners and believers and members of this congregation. And it's a textbook which teaches us how to live together. And so what we do this morning as we come before the Word of God is we challenge ourselves to be humble. We humble ourselves before the word and the truth, which it's about to speak to us. And what we do here is we humble ourselves that we can learn the duties which God would have ourselves devote ourselves to. And at the same time, be instructed that we may understand the infirmities and the similar kinds of moral and spiritual weaknesses, which uh, will come upon us as members of the church so that we'll understand what the problem is and the remedy of the applied to fix it. And so there's two things I want to think about this morning as I think about congregational living from our text is duties and infirmities. And then secondly, we'll deal with implications. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here on the duties and infirmities. And those are fairly easy for us to see here as we come into our text. We have five duties and three infirmities. And I think the most natural way to expound this is to expound the duties in connection with the infirmities and then as we naturally see the in full view of text we'll focus in on the end on a couple of more moral duties but as we think about that i want us to just pay attention here to the preface and uh, i think it's important that we do for a couple of reasons first of all we need to nail down who is the apostle paul speaking to who is he speaking to And uh, one way we can know who he's speaking to is just take note of the original words here in verse, say, 14, and then also in 12. If your Bible's open, you can see pretty easily there's sort of a parallel. Verse 12 says, we request of you, brethren. And then if you look at verse 14, he says, we urge you, brethren. Well, what does that tell us? It tells us that structurally, the Apostle Paul is signaling that he's transitioning from one set of relationships in the church to another. He's marking off the exhortations now. We'll remember the previous exhortation. It was to the congregation. And the previous exhortation was about pastor-congregational relationships. We said that as the Apostle Paul hits the homestretch here, in 1 Thessalonians 5, as he's winding his way down, as he's, as he's racing towards the finish line of 1 Thessalonians, he ends with a series of very practical exhortations. And the first practical exhortation he wanted to drive home to the people of God is that it absolutely matters how pastors and congregations interrelate. In fact, if this relationship isn't sound there will be no soundness in the church there'll be no soundness in the congregation and so in order to encourage and promote that soundness he, he spells out the pastoral duties here in verse 12 where he speaks of the charge of ministers which is to labor in the word and to watch over you and then he says to the congregation in view of that he says you esteemed them very highly in love because of their work. And what ties it together is the concluding exhortation there. Live at peace with one another. This is the apostles' will for the church. Live at peace with one another. Pastors and congregations, live at peace. That's for the blessing of the congregation. But then now, as you track into verse 12, you can see the Apostle is still setting up exhortations. But now he's saying, I'm moving on from that particular set of exhortations about that particular relationship. And now he sets before us the relationship of members of the congregation towards one another. That's what we're calling this sermon, congregational living. It's important that we grasp hold who the recipients are. Because of the duties that are prescribed here. You know, there are some people who look at this text and they see the duty of uh, admonishing, encouraging, and helping. And they say, well, all of those duties feel very official. In fact, they say, if you were to look at other portions of scripture, you can see these are peculiarly ministerial or pastoral duties. So some would say, well, I guess Paul really hasn't stopped talking to pastors yet, so you can just take a break and relax here this morning. But Matthew Poole looks at this, and he says, well, we can concede these are pastoral duties, but it doesn't mean that the same duty doesn't apply to two different sets of people. He said two things can be true at once. And his example is this, and it's fascinating. He draws on the political realm, and he says... Uh, uh, you know magistrates are obligated to seek the good of the commonwealth of the country but he says at the same time so are the citizens he says the difference is this though they both have the same moral duty which is the promotion and the seeking of what is good for the country and commonwealth at the same time They both have that duty. They do it for different reasons. The magistrate does what he does out of his office, and the citizen does it because of the call of neighbors to love one another. Now, that's exactly the way he says you approach this text. Surely, these are peculiarly pastoral uh, responsibilities, but he argues here that um, they also bear upon all of us. They bear upon you this morning. Just because pastors are obligated to do these things doesn't mean that you aren't. And the reason why you are obligated to do these things is bound up in that word, brethren. We urge you, brethren. It's in the plural, and it casts a wide net. It says, have you been blood-bought this morning? Have you been redeemed by Christ? Have your sins been pardoned and forgiven? Has the righteousness of Christ been stamped to your account? Has the Spirit of God been sent forth and placed within you? Have you been adopted into the family of God? If you have, then whatever follows is for you. And that tells us this morning, though we're going to speak a lot about moral duty, we need to begin by making sure we understand the gospel footing and foundation of the duties that flow here. Because everything that flows here says that Christ Jesus thinks you're important. Christ Jesus regards you as valuable. There's no greater sound to our ears than to hear that Jesus Christ loved the church so much that he gave himself for it. And so what that says is that everybody whom he died for is important, is valuable, is treasured. And that means then that in the Christian life and the way it's lived out within the framework and the context of the church, Jesus doesn't want people to fall behind He doesn't want them to deal with their problems in isolation. He doesn't want them to flounder spiritually. In other words, the apostle here is appealing to the family bond and tie that we have to one another because of the blood of Christ and because of gospel grace. And he says he's appealing to all of you here this morning as those who know Christ to say, make it your sense of obligation to commit yourself to those whom Christ views as valuable, which is anybody that he's died for. This is a long way to say that when you read Brethren this morning, go ahead and put yourself there. Put yourself in the shoes of it and say that whatever follows is your duty. It's your calling. So let's start thinking about The duties and infirmities here. And I want you to begin with me at verse 14 where it says, brethren, admonish the unruly. We need to think about that unruly here because it's a problem. It's a spiritual problem. The word unruly comes from the military world. And it refers to a soldier who is falling out of formation and not marching in step with his fellow soldiers. And if you've been in the military, you know they don't tend to like that. There's no individuals and no heroes. There's only teams. So it's easy for that word to um, spill over into concepts such as um, undisciplined and lawless and disorderly and idle. So let me give you an example of it so you can see for yourself. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6. We have the same language here in both verses. We command you, brethren. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. There's your word. And not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act, and here's your word again, in an undisciplined manner among you. Now, now, what I want to do is just for a moment is impress upon you this morning that this idea of being unruly is a spiritual infirmity. It's a sin. It's a mark of immaturity. It's a problem, and it's dangerous. Because what I want you to notice here, what the Apostle Paul says about the unruly is that they refuse to walk according to the tradition which is from us. And you can debate here whether tradition means an inspired letter that we don't have or whether it means the instruction of one thessalonians or it means some sort of unwritten pastoral inspired instruction or whether it simply means pastoral instruction i, I it, there's a good argument to be made here i don't want to dismiss the relevance of it but the reality is what Paul diagnoses as the problem and the root of an unruly life is somebody who refuses to be taught. It is somebody who refuses instruction. It is somebody who refuses to live according to the standards that are moral and righteous and good. And so in order to direct away from that, the Apostle Paul says, remember us. Remember how we acted. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. And his example was this. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner. The verb there is the same. We didn't act in an unruly manner. But what does Paul mean by that? Flip back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you like, and you can see exactly what he means. He's referring to his behavior among them. He says there, you recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, working night and day. Again in verse 10, you're witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved among you. You see, this is a moral category. This is a spiritual category to be unruly. Because the Apostle Paul says, as he appeals to his own example, our example was one done under a sense of moral obligation and calling. It was under a standard. It had ethical implications. It was devotion. It was uprightness. It was blamelessness. The point is that we need to understand this morning is that the unruly person is a person who's in spiritual danger. They're a person who refuses to be taught. They're a, f- a person who refuses to act according to the moral standards of the community. They're a person who is not following what Christ would have them follow. They're not submitting to the pastors and eldership of the church. They're not taking up their office and calling before God. They are neglecting their responsibilities towards others and to themselves. And so the issue here is unruliness is sinful. It's a moral failing. And it happens in the congregation. It happens among the people of God. And just so we sense just how dangerous this is, if you were to read the rest of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, you would see that it goes all the way to church discipline and excommunication from the church of Jesus Christ. It's a real issue then. People who are unsubmissive and out of order and won't live according to a moral standard, well, there's problems for them. And so what the Apostle Paul would say to us this morning is when this behavior is seen, he says this, you admonish them. You admonish them. When we take note of unruliness, we don't simply notice it and say, gee, I hope that gets better. No, the Apostle Paul calls for intervention, if you will. And the word here is nuthetao. A generation ago, a whole model of Christian counseling was developed uh, within the church called nuthetic counseling. and It was supposed to be... uh, opposite of secularistic sort of counseling its principles which isn't confrontational and isn't necessarily biblical but you see the idea here of nuthateo is that when you see somebody that is behaving and acting contrary uh, to christ the obligation is to go and to directly to the face confront them verbally you see it means go state what's wrong Go state what's wrong. It's not to be contentious. It's not to be disorderly. It's not to be excessively passionate. It's got to be wise. It needs to be done with wisdom and care and the right place, and the right time, in the right way. But nonetheless, the Apostle Paul says, this is the way you counteract it. Is that a concerned, caring, member of? Of the congregation, the brother or sister says, This is dangerous, brother or sister. You need to be concerned that if you continue on this way, you'll make shipwreck of your life and of your soul. And so the apostle Paul calls upon the church to do something out of love, out of the deepest sense of concern. Which is to notice the problem, to acknowledge the potential of spiritual ruin and to say, I've got to help. I've got to help. People of God, what that means this morning is that you have to have enough love and concern for fellow members that you're willing to take this risk. You have to have enough love and concern for the danger it is to somebody to lead an unruly life that you would say, God, I think I have some wisdom and some help I can bring to this person. And then you have to have the courage and the boldness under Christ and by the power of his spirit to do that. Do we need this? Do we need this in our midst? Well, yes, we do. We have some who are behaving in an unruly manner. pastors and elders can contact but here again i point out here the brethren includes within its scope not just pastors and elders but the congregation and what it calls us to do is to go apply the means christ has appointed to deliver somebody from the spiritual peril of an unruly life that's the first duty and infirmity you can see the second one here encourage the faint-hearted, and it seems um, at first glance that being faint-hearted may not be that dangerous. After all, we all know timidity. We've probably experienced it ourselves. It may not feel like it's as strong, perhaps, as unruliness, but the reality is when faint-heartedness isn't reined in, when it isn't rejected, When it isn't stopped, it does lead to great spiritual danger. Matthew Poole looks at it like this as he speaks of the faint hearted. He says they are such as dare not venture upon hazardous duties or faint under fears or feelings of affliction, are dejected under the sense of sin and their own unworthiness or fears of God's wrath, and are assaulted by temptations which endanger them to fall. And you say, well, maybe that's laying on a little bit thick this morning. But I say, well, would you turn with me in the word of God to 2 Timothy chapter 1? Because it is a real problem. It is a spiritual problem. And it's not a sign of grace. It's a sign of disobedience before the Lord. And we know that because of how Paul addresses Timothy. He is writing to Timothy. And this is what he says to him. For God has not given us, this is 1 Timothy 1 1.7, a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and in self-discipline. Here the apostle is speaking to Timothy, who is himself not an apostle. He was a very useful servant, as the apostle calls him, a minister of the word, whom he had left behind in Ephesus to deal, well, really, I would say to engage him in spiritual combat with unruly, rebellious, unteachable people who were seeking to destroy the congregation. And somehow along the way, this brother, well, he experienced timidity. He experienced the spiritual problem of being faint-hearted. He got scarred and he got wounded based upon the fierce opposition Of the rebels against Christ. And became shell-shocked. And he became faint-hearted. And I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I want you to know that timidity is not of God. He says very directly, very specifically to Timothy, God didn't give this spirit. But he goes on to say this is what God has given. He gave the spirit of power, of love, and discipline. In other words, what he's saying to Timothy is this behavior, this mentality, this attitude, this way of being is not of Christ. This is not the operation of grace. And it can look like it because it looks gentle on the exterior. But it's not of God. It's not of the spirit. Because the Spirit of God doesn't give a spirit of weakness. Now The Spirit of God does something entirely different. The old King James says, power and love and a sound mind. And that's a great translation. Because that's what the Spirit of God works in us. To be faint-hearted is not to be full of grace. It's to not be under the influence of grace. It's not God-given. And so it must be corrected because it's dangerous. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says to do in view of that. He says, encourage, encourage the faint hearted. And it means to speak towards somebody with gentleness. And the synonyms of the word are something like cheer, refresh, or soothe. But one of the things I think is important about that. Is um, the apostle is not saying that encouragement feels like a hallmark card. You follow? Encouragement is not like the words that you read on a greetings card. They may say some wonderful things. Maybe very flowery, maybe encouraging, it may be uplifting. But the aim of this encouragement is not just to say things. The aim of the encouragement is to say things which change the mind and the disposition of this faint hearted person back into what the spirit of God would have for them, which is bold action. In other words, it's a very corrective sense of encouragement here. And one way we know that is because of what the Apostle Paul said by way of preface to Timothy. We've already read the part when he said to him, God didn't give you the spirit of timidity. But I want you to notice what he said before that in verse six. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you. For God has not given you a spirit. Notice here what he says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you need to get out a gasoline can and a lighter and fan your gifts into a flame. Because what you are manifesting and what you are wallowing in isn't Christ. It's not of the Spirit of God. And so I want you to know that the force of this word encouragement is more than just saying a few flowery, nice words. The encouragement has an aim to it. The tone is softer, I get, than confront. Okay, I get that. It's it's softer than that. For a good reason. Because this person isn't actively uh, undisciplined and unruly. It's passive. But but you know the problem with this, and, and Jesus describes it, he says that some people hear the word and they flourish in the Christian life for a time. But then he says all of a sudden, afflictions come and they fall away from Christ. Jesus said it's going to happen. When you come to Christ, when you stand at the foot of the cross and you know the joy of sin's pardon and forgiveness, he says it's going to come. Trials will come. Afflictions will come. Sorrows for your relationship to Christ will come. He says watch out because some people will not count the costs. And they will regard the carefree life they had outside of Christ as more valuable than the affliction-laden life of self-denial. We must not mistake faintheartedness. It's a spiritual danger because the person who's caught up in it in time, if they don't repent of it, they don't turn from it, will be somebody who will be broken over that great stone of stumbling and return to the world and to disobedience and to not following Christ and so what um, the apostle says to us this morning here is he says if you find this faint heartedness in your congregation you really need to come alongside and help and people become shell shocked by life's trials and afflictions when they become overly concerned because of, of the insults with uh, of, of belonging to Christ and the and the trouble that's related to standing with him, watch them. Go to them. Encourage them. Call them to, fl- to fan their gifts into a flame and remind them that they have something that's greater than their sorrows. They have something greater and more real than what they feel with their anxiety. They have the spirit of God within them who's a spirit of power and of love and of self discipline And he calls us to active obedience to Christ. And so we have the infirmity here before us. And that infirmity is timidity and faint-heartedness. And Paul says you exercise yourself to bring them help. We see the third thing here, help the weak. Help the weak. And uh, obviously this could be physical weakness, but it seems very unlikely it would be. The first two problems weren't about physical matters, they were spiritual. And so since all of these are on a continuum and parallel in the text, it's obviously a spiritual matter. And you know, Jesus warns about weakness. It's pretty real. Mark fourteen thirty eight, he says, Keep watching and praying, so that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak spiritual category moral problem the flesh is weak notice there is a duty to be performed here there's an obligation to call and keep watching and praying so you don't fall into temptation that's the will of Christ for every believer keep watching keep praying so that you don't fall into temptation reminds us an awful lot of the very vivid statement of Genesis chapter 4 Satan stands crouching at the door You've never been promised that you'll be able to lead a life that's um, free from temptation. It will come. And so what Jesus says here is there's a moral duty and calling for the disciples. It's to keep watching and to keep praying. But then he brings before us this warning. He says, watch out, though. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And obviously he is speaking in spiritual and moral and religious categories here. Because of the contrast. He says, the spirit is willing. That is, the regenerate nature is willing. This is precisely what the Apostle Paul says, by the way, in Romans chapter 7. The thing that I want to do, it comes from the spirit of God. It is right. It is moral. It is according to Christ. I have that in me because I'm regenerate. Because the spirit of adoption is in me. But you have something else in you. I have something else in me. We all have something else in us. And it's ugly. It's ugly. It's called the flesh. And it's in constant antagonism and opposition to the spirit. Jesus, watch out. The flesh is weak. But another example of this weakness in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, Take care that this liberty of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. You know the context well. It's, uh, it's the context of Paul addressing the matter of meat sacrifice to idols. That is, uh, meat that was, uh, was, was an old carved up animal that got sacrificed to some pagan god. That meat was left over from the sacrifice that wasn't burned up or consumed in the temple. was taken down to the local Ralphs and sold. And and the apostles' response to it is, meat is meat. But then he said, wait, you know, there's some people who are so freshly new from paganism and from all that is attending those sacrifices and those pagan ceremonies that they can't deal with it. They can't eat that meat. They can't go to Ralph's. Because they they will be drawn back right into those temple precincts and they'll be engaging once again in that idolatry and that false religion and that way of life they left behind. And so Paul says, there's some people who are morally weak. Sin becomes so ingrained, its grooves wear into the soul so deeply and so profoundly that when we leave sin and we are redeemed, and we are regenerated, it's still yet easy for us to return to those old sinful ways. This is a very dangerous infirmity that he speaks of. Because what he says is, you are all too prone to this. And the entire exposition there uh, uh, falls under the, the category of a Thick cloud where he says, watch out, because there's some people who just can't handle your liberty. And when they see it, they may go back and partake and fall away. You see, people of God, moral weakness is real. Because of the sinfulness of our heart and because of the remaining sin within us. I think this is for everybody here this morning. I don't think you're ever going to get to the place in the Christian life where it's not real. I think everybody might raise their hand this morning and say, is that you? Yep. I I hope, though, that there's somebody around that can do this. (laughs) We see the spiritual infirmity, and here's what the apostle says. Help. Those are some lovely words, aren't they? Help. One version has lay hold of them. Hold on to them. And what strikes me about it is it's so different in nature than the previous two, isn't it? The previous two were about words. Go confront. Go encourage. And this is so tactile. It's so tactile. Go grab them. That's the sense here. Go lay hold of them. Go stand right Beside them and hold them up. You see, those who are struggling mildly with moral and spiritual weakness, who are on the verge of making shipwreck of their faith and going back to all of their old sins, they need very desperately somebody who has some strength within them to go stand right by them say I'm here for you brother here for you sister you see this is very practical help this is very practical intervention this is not condoning anything the point of help is not we're going there to commiserate and condone it's to say that I'm here to hold you accountable I'm here to speak wisdom to you I'm here to point out that there's, uh, there's things that are going on in your life that are almost guaranteeing that you're gonna keep returning to the same old trap and I'm gonna show you that. It's not forever, the weak has to grow. The weak has to grow to stand on their feet. And I thought the analogy kind of worked of, of a dad trying to help their children learn how to ride a bicycle for the first time without a training wheel. You probably, like me, still have scars on your knees from when you fell down over and again when you learned how to ride your bike without training. Those big bloody raspberries were so painful. Pour teen all over them, pick the rocks out, put on the bandages. But you see, that's what dad does. He helps, He comes right alongside you as you're driving that bicycle down the street till you can get it steady. And then there's that magical moment when that young kid is peddling away and they figured it all out. And the raspberries are gone unless they intentionally crash their bike or do crazy stuff anymore. They know how to ride. So what does dad do? He goes back to the family room and he reads the newspaper. He's not there forever. He's there long enough to be a support and a help that's what the apostle is saying here help the weak people of god we need that here we need that here we need people who are cultivating the strength to be helpers we need people other people need the help of the stronger and so what this do is it it calls us to keep our eyes wide open this morning to make sure that As we live together as a spiritual family in this congregation to keep our, our head up and our eyes open. Find ourselves willing to lend a hand. There's two more duties here. We can go over them fairly quickly. They're not too difficult to understand. I think it is of some interest the Apostle Paul ends with patience. Be patient with everyone. I think the best way to read that is in connection with context. It's not by accident that it comes after the, uh, the three parallel spiritual duty infirmity uh, links there. And, uh, you know, there's more than one commentator has realized that this patience is going to be needed. Because helping people can test every single fiber of your being. Calvin says, nothing are we more prone to than to feel wearied when we set ourselves to the cure of the diseases of our brethren. I'll just read it again because it's such a great quote. Nothing are we more prone to than to feel wearied when we set ourselves to the cure of the diseases of our brethren. Spoken as a man of true experience. He can be irksome can be irksome to come alongside the faint-hearted and tell them repeatedly that it's time to fend that gift into a flame and three and four and five and six times more they don't you can test all the strength and patience you have to come alongside that weak person and tell them there's certain things they got to get rid of in their life there's places they can't go there's people they can't be around there's stuff they can't do because it's exactly that it's the cause of their problems and yet they do it again and again It can be difficult to go confront the person who's unruly only to hear them snap back at you because they're too stupid to see the danger they're in. So I think the reason why here the Apostle Paul places it fairly obvious says here's what's going to have to happen. Here's what you need when you go to help. You need to be patient. You need to be long-suffering. You need to... Try in some measure to be what God is to you. He's long-suffering and abundant in mercy. You know what that word long-suffering means? It means they have a long nose. I'm not making it up. It means they have a long nose because the nose was associated with wrath. The longer that nose was, the longer that fuse was till it went off. Slow to anger long-suffering patience and just to sort of punctuate that admonition we have what appears to be a separate admonition in verse 15 but I think it's fair to say the admonition of verse 15 connects to verse 15 and saying this is what the application of it all here are a couple of things the apostle Paul says you need to think about When you're trying to deal with this problem of patience, he says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good and for one another and for all people. Notice here the Apostle Paul probably is reaching back to that word patience and saying, here's something else that's bound up with that patience. Here's something else you need to exercise yourself to when you're dealing with people and their frustrations. Don't repay them evil for evil. Don't repay. But instead, here's what he says to do. You pursue what is good. That word pursue is, uh, is so intense. It's to devote all of the energy you have. Pursue it. Pursue good. Pursue moral goodness. Be intentional. Be proactive. Seek to do everything that you know is good and wholesome and helpful that will lead to blessing for the person sitting next to you, to the person behind you, to the person in front of you. Notice how expansive the terminology is here. He says, always seek after that which is good for one another and for everyone. If we only had one single moral obligation to fulfill in our life and this was it, we would all fail because of how expansive it is. And yet it's essential because the Apostle Paul is teaching us this morning how to live together as a spiritual family and as a congregation. And what he says is it takes the greatest care and concern and action. Those are the duties and those are the infirmities. Can I end with uh, three quick uh, applications? I think they're relevant. I'll try to be as concise and as brief as I can because I know that we've been spending a lot of time here. But one of the things that I want to say here is I, I take in the whole picture of what Paul just set before us in terms of congregational living is I think there's a few highlights to appreciate. And the first is this. That this list of spiritual infirmities testifies to us what we already know that we're all a work in progress. That all of us here are a work in progress. And I don't think that the Apostle Paul, in any way, meant to indicate that there's only three common infirmities to Christians and to churches that of being unruly and faint hearted and weak. I think they are just sort of uh, a summary way of speaking of our problem. What the Apostle Paul is reminding us of is that even though we've been bought with a price, and even though our record has been uh, cleared and, and our guilt has been pardoned, that doesn't exhaustively take away all of sin's corruption. So, what will you find when you come to church? But sinful people. People are battling infirmities and therefore are struggling. And so secondly, what we learn here from all these duties is something about commitment. All of us have commitment. Paul places the duties that are all set out here that help under the category of imperative. These are all commands when he says confront, encourage and help. And one of the things that that tells us then is that God has done something marvelous for us. He has instituted the community of the church. He has instituted the congregation of believers as the place where we go and deal with our problems. He has instituted the church as the place where we are associated by the blood-bought connection of Jesus Christ as the place where we struggle through life along our pilgrimage path to heaven with our infirmities, because it's right there when we are associated with people who have this common thing we share about one another is that we have been saved by Christ. it's with those people and their help and their owing their commitment that we'll be able to persevere spiritually and to work through our problems. And the third thing that I see here are Means. The encouragement and hope of our text this morning is that even though we're always going to struggle with sin, the Apostle Paul, by connecting duties and means here, is saying there's real help for this. There won't be ultimate and decisive victory, but there will be degrees, there will be growth, there will be maturity. And the hope then that is set for us in the form of these means is there is a way to grow out of this? The way to correct unruliness is admonition. The way to correct, to correct faint hardness, and encouragement. The way to correct moral weakness is help. They're not to be left unresolved or unattended. By spelling out these means and such clear and painfully obvious detail what he's saying to us this morning is there's a way there's encouragement for the believer there's hope here for us that as we walk forward we have help as we apply these means to the grace of christ and the power and the help of the holy spirit jesus does something which is which is wonderful he builds us up in his grace and he, begins to mature us and perfect us and strengthen and fortify us. That can only happen in the church. That can only happen in the congregation. That can only happen in the spiritual family. And it can only happen when the people of God take it as their solemn obligation and duty out of a sense of brotherly love, out of an awareness of the value of the brethren purchased by Christ that they're called to take up their duty. And when we do that, we'll have a blessed congregation. Father, help us this morning to hear the challenge of the words of our text, which is that we're all in this together. You haven't appointed us uh, to live the Christian life as rogue individuals, pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps, that you've made us a community, a family and a church I pray Heavenly Father for those here this morning who are struggling we all struggle with infirmities but some of them feel like they're causing us to drown if there's anyone who feels like they're drowning I pray Lord that you would bless them that you would keep them that you would pour out your grace upon them that you would help them to find firm spiritual footing I pray that all of us would hear the admonitions to us this morning to the call to duty that we're not to be onlookers and rubberneckers driving by the freeway of people's problems, taking note and doing nothing. We're called to help each other, to come alongside of each other, to speak words of wisdom to one another, and to really do that, believing that you will use these means which you have appointed. Draw people out of the mire and the quicksand of their infirmity and sin and weakness. So help us, Lord, to be faithful, to be humble to hear the words, and then obedient to respond, so that it will be to the blessing of our congregation. And so Lord, we commit this prayer to you in the name of our great and glorious and gracious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll respond this morning.